Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host. Today, we are bringing you an episode that I find extremely exciting. Uh, this episode I, I've, I've wanted to do since the inception of this podcast. Um, today, we are talking about one of the most revered, or you could even say feared, large carnivores in the Americas, Panthera onca, the jaguar. A lot of people don't even know that jaguars occur in the United States, but they do, uh, and they do here in Arizona. We have one animal we know about right now. Could be more, but we know there's one. They do have a natural history in our state, and that's what you're going to learn all about today with our guest, retired Arizona Game and Fish Department biologist, Randy Babb. Randy is an expert on all things natural history here in Arizona and beyond, and Randy just published a paper along with the late Dave Brown on historical records of jaguars in Arizona. You're going to learn all about this animal's natural history in our state um, and, and about its future. So stick around, listen to this. Um, I had a blast with this conversation. Uh, it's a subject I've been fascinated with since before I came to the state. Um, magnificent, magnificent animal. So stick around, listen to that. But before, let's do some announcements from some of our great conservation organizations here in Arizona. All right, right off the bat, we have a dispersed camping workshop from Becoming an Outdoors Woman. You should have learned all about Becoming an Outdoors Woman on our last episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. If you didn't, go back and listen to that now. This program is amazing and worthy of your attention. So this special camping program is located at Camp Raymond near Flagstaff. It's June 24th through 26th. The participation fee is $170. I will provide a link to more information in the show notes, but here's your description. It says, come cool off in the high country and join us for the special bow campout. This is a great opportunity to use the camping skills you've learned at bow and gain new ones. Learn how to set up and use camping gear, yours, our, ours, cook great food, and safely enjoy camping in the great outdoors in a dispersed camping setting. That is without any on-site amenities, no electricity, no water. In addition to sharing camping skills and stories, we'll have some traditional camping activities, including archery, hiking, geocaching, and stargazing. You don't want to miss that. It's going to be a good time. Let's see. Then the Arizona Antelope Federation will be holding its annual recognition and fundraising banquet on Saturday, June 11th at the Embassy Suites on Rural Road in Tempe, beginning at 4.30 p.m. Tickets are just $65 and can be purchased by going on their website at azantelope.org. It promises to be a fun, interactive, family-oriented evening, so please plan on joining them. And the Arizona Antelope Foundation was featured on our, I think, seventh episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast, so go back, listen to that. It's one of the hardest-working conservation groups out there. In fact, their vice president, Glenn Dickens, who also serves as the Arizona Wildlife Federation vice president, was recently awarded and recognized for his work on Sonoran pronghorn restoration by the Arizona Game and Fish Department. All right, moving on to the Full Draw Film Tour. 
Film Draw Film Tour is coming to Arizona in June. That's June 14th, 15th, and 16th, starting in Tucson, then Chandler, then Flagstaff. Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers will be in attendance at all of those shows, and I will be in attendance for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers in the Flagstaff event. So come by and say hello. Also, our own, or I should say Arizona's own Josh Kirshner, the Dialed in Hunter, has a film in this year's tour. So you're not going to want to miss that. Next up, from Valley of the Sun Quail Forever, they are having a pint night at the Sandbar Mexican Grill. That's 21001 North Tatum Boulevard, Phoenix, Arizona. And that's on Wednesday, May 25th. Uh, from your host, Steve Robbins. Just a casual gathering like we used to do with no formal agenda. You buy whatever drinks you want, and I will throw in some appetizers. Let's just spend some time together talking about birds, dogs, shotguns, hunting experiences, and let's make some new friends. So that's going to be a good time. Don't miss it. Last but not least, from Women on the Wing. Women on the Wing are a new, exciting, upcoming group here in Arizona. Um, they are having their first banquet on June 25th at the Elks Lodge, number 476 in Yuma, Arizona. There are a variety of ticket prices and options, so you're going to want to go check that out and decide how you want to contribute, but you do want to contribute. This group is offering opportunities to women who want to get out there in the field and have a great time chasing birds and experiencing dog work and, and all the things that come with upland hunting that is so much fun. They're providing this to ladies now. So definitely get out there and yeah, support them. I'll make sure you have a link to some information in the show notes, or you can call Shauna Krill at 760-884-9175. All right, that's all for it for our announcements. Stick around and listen to this. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. And yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see you after the show. All right, I am. I'm sitting here today with Randy Babb, and I guess if you run in naturalist circles, um, Randy is a bit of a legend around here. Um, and, and it's it's he gets into everything, um, and, and he does it on such a level that it's like the yeah. I'm narrowly focused. I'll get into one thing, and I still won't won't reach reach Mr. Babb's level on that. Um, but he is highly regarded in naturalist circles, and it's for a good reason. Uh, just last year, I got to watch Randy inducted into the Arizona Outdoor Hall of Fame. So that was pretty neat. But Randy, I'm going to let you get into the nitty gritties on who you are, where you come from, uh, your career. Uh, but yeah, Randy's a world traveler. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I'm sure we could do an entire episode on who Randy is. But uh, but I'll let him have the floor to give us a give us a snippet anyway. Well, I will spare everybody. I'm certainly nothing special. I'm just another schmo out there that loves natural history and really interested in uh, everything out there. I mean, there's just a lot of fascinating things going on, and so. Uh, um, as is uh, the case with people with ADD, uh, I um, I can't I, I tend to be interested in everything. Look at all that stuff and and never really settle on one thing. And so yeah, I I worked for the Game and Fish Department for thirty some odd years, and then uh, for the Forest Service before that. Really blessed to 
spend my whole life playing with animals, which I wanted to do from my earliest rem- uh, memory. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a really lucky guy. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, speaking of those of those early memories, I, I, there's a reason I'm in Arizona. Um, and it's, it's because of, of the natural history and the biodiversity here. Um, and the animal that we're here to talk about today, uh, the North American, or we should say maybe borderlands jaguar, um, is no small part of that. Uh, when, I, when I learned that jaguars occurred uh, in the United States, I, I was blown away. I dug into that. Um, and I can't say the jaguar is why I'm in Arizona, but that, that assemblage of wildlife that, that comes with Southern Arizona is quite literally the reason that I'm here and the reason my roots got put down here. There's so many fantastic species down there and the jaguar is no small part of that. Yeah, if you like natural history, it's hard to beat Arizona. I mean, there's lots of states with more of this and that uh, as you move around, but really the the story of Submogion Plateau, Arizona is uh tropical species at their northern distributional limits and for the most part jaguars uh, figure into that along with thick-billed parrots and green rat snakes and thorn scrub hook-nosed snakes and trogons and the list goes on and on and on and so we're so fortunate to have such a incredible diverse wildlife and a floral and faunal contingent here in Arizona I mean I just love it and um, the, you, you'll never stop learning and you'll never come close to knowing it all. It's, right. it's a wonderful place to be. It is. Um, yeah, it got, it's, it's hooks in me deep, so to speak. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, as a kid interested in, in all this stuff, the, the idea of, you know, not even those tropical species, but like the desert boas, the fact that I could come to the Southwestern United States and find a boa, something in my, you know, Missouri child's mind was just unbelievably exotic um and yeah it uh, hung on to me uh and you know i came out here with my wife uh girlfriend at the time convincing her that we would only spend two years because i just really wanted to do arizona well and i needed time to do that and uh, you know of course we're still here 11 years later (laughs) but um and i've still not scratched the surface you know uh i started having babies and got married when i got out here and that really puts a puts a dent in your and you're playing outside time. Um, and while I've got to do a lot and I've got to explore a lot of our ecosystems and, and find a lot of these species that I've dreamed about my whole life, you know, there's still so much more. There's so many canyons I've never stepped a foot in or mountains I haven't climbed. Uh, the, the place is magnificent. Yeah. Uh, so much public land uh, to explore. I mean, what yes. else could you ask for? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, yeah, that's why I'm raising my kids here. I want them to have access to all this, you know. Back home in Missouri, it's, it's not like this. You know, it's a beautiful place and we have great rivers and that's the one thing we're missing out here, you know, is, is those moving water ecosystems. But, um, but yeah, it's all of this public land. When, when I first got out here and, you know, we're just driving down the road and it's like, well, we can stop and camp wherever the hell we want. You know, that, that was foreign to me. You know, it just seems like such a strange thing that I could stop and do this and not get in trouble for it. It's a good, good problem to have out here. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're, we're here today because you just published a paper on Jaguars. Yep. Can you give us a quick overview of that paper, and we'll, we'll talk more about it as we go along. Well, I, um, yeah, I, I've always been interested in jaguars, like you are. I mean, what a marvelous animal to have as part of our heritage. And, uh, and uh, a very good friend of mine, Dave Brown, and I would constantly have conversations about jaguars. And Dave had done so much of the early work on jaguars here, along with seaton and a whole bunch of other people that had done some really neat stuff on jaguars dating way way back uh Voorhees goes on and on anyway um uh 
we were um, we were messing around, and a guy contacted me, and he had found a picture that I'd never seen of a jaguar uh, that was actually killed right here behind my house up in the Superstition Mountains. And so we went and made a trip down to Superior um, and visited the pub where that photograph was from and talked with them. Really nice family, the Guzman family, wonderful folks, and they were very, very helpful. But that kind of got my curiosity going. And so with Dave and uh, and the help of several other people, we just started going through uh, newspaper accounts and any other old account I could find. And uh, started back from the earliest known papers all the way up and found 13 new Jaguar accounts that were previously undocumented. And then the more recent Jaguar accounts um, that you see of, um, oh, of these Jaguars that have been photographed along the uh, borderland, they had never really been, even though they've been officially reported, they never really made it into a scientific paper all as one thing. Mm -hmm. So what we strove to do in this paper was everything that we knew about Jaguars in Arizona just put them all in one place, a repository. So in that big appendix in the back, there's little details from all the newspaper articles and stuff. And, and that was probably the funnest part of the, uh, of the um, research project was, I mean, uh, I'd heard about the Jaguar killed by Clyde Miller in the Santa Teresa's in the 20s, but I found the newspaper article which describes the whole chase and what he was doing and everything like that. And that's a wonderful yeah. photograph of him carrying the Jaguar through the snow with another guy. I'm not going to lie. That was my favorite part to read. Too. Yeah. yeah the snippets from papers. And, and I've got all those newspaper articles, and that might be the next project. I don't know. I don't know if I'm that ambitious. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, there was it was there were wonderful background stories. So we, we took all those little pieces and tried to put them in there so everybody could have those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I enjoyed reading those a lot. Um, well, let's talk about David Brown. Uh, I never got the, I had the pleasure of meeting David. Um, but boy, I hear lots of stories. Um, I'm, I'm almost through his borderlands, borderlands Jaguar book. I've got two of his Southwestern Grizzly books sitting on my desk waiting to read next. Um, yeah, he's, uh, He's highly regarded. Um, can you tell us a little bit about David? Yeah, highly regarded is a, kind of an understatement. Dave was one of the most influential people in my life. Um, uh, I first met him when I came to work at the Game and Fish Department, and, and we only overlapped a couple years. But we hit it off pretty quickly because he has incredibly broad interest. And if you look at all his books, I mean— Everything from Gila monsters and vampire bats to wolves, grizzly bears to historical things, um, 20 some odd books the, the man uh, edited or, or wrote, and then countless uh, publications. I think uh, we were working on a project together and we had to produce our CVs, uh, and mine was very paltry, but Jay, Dave's was like 32 pages long or 33 pages long, single spaced. Wow. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking, <laughs> holy cat. But he was, he's, uh, he's, it would um, it would it would barely be doing him justice by saying he was one of the most uh, um, influential biologists to come out of Arizona in the past you know couple hundred years. I mean, he really did a lot of stuff, a lot of amazing things. Uh, keen, a keen mind, great eye. Um, he used to tell me, ask the question. 
Just ask the question, you know, why is that here and why is that not over there? What's it doing? How come it's doing that? And if it's doing that, what makes it do that? And it's just on and on and on. And, uh, and I mean, he made us all better biologists. And so uh, remarkable, remarkable guy. And, uh, and this was one of the last things we, we did together. Uh, he just passed away. And so really miss Dave and miss having him in my life. Well, he sounds like a remarkable man. And Amazing you, guy. You're not you're not the first person to express that to me as well. So, well, it sounds like I, I missed out not getting to meet him, but at least I get to read read his books and look over <laughs> look over the work he's left us. Um, all right. So, in thinking about how how I kind of wanted to format uh, this talk, um, I thought maybe the simplest way to do it would be to just kind of go through it field guide style into those sections. So, you know, the, the description, we'll talk about habitat, talk about range. Um, and then, you know, we can add tidbits here and there to that if you like. Um, so for starts, let's talk about, you know, what, what a Jaguar is. I mean, I'm sure most folks know what a Jaguar is, but you know, uh, this is primarily, primarily a jungle cat, you know, making, making a living, you know, in rare instances up, up here in the, in the desert Southwest of the United States. Um, but you know, what, what about a jaguar allows it to do that? Well, God, great question. Um, and I don't know. I know the answer to that. And and it probably should be clarified that um, jaguars much uh, prehistorically occupied most of North America, and so they were way up into the northern tier states and um, and central uh, United States. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, from what I can discern, and I'm no paleontologist, um, the uh, Prehistoric jaguars were identical to our current day jaguars, just larger. Mm-hmm. And so the question remains: um, Did jaguars mainly their distribution did it just shrink back to the southern tier of states, or did you have a post Pleistocene migration where cats came back up not mm-hmm. north? And I really can't answer that, but I kind of favor that the distribution shrunk because we have jaguars from Florida and Louisiana and then all across Texas. I think there may be one from Mississippi. And so um, it looks like maybe at the end of the Pleistocene, whatever changed, they just got pushed back to the southern tier states. However, it doesn't appear that jaguars figure significantly in any of the uh, native cultures um, in the northern part of Mexico, like they do when you get further south. I yeah. mean, jaguars are all over the place, but you don't see them in the Yaqui cultures or Siri or any of that kind of stuff. You don't see those jaguars. So again, you know, maybe they weren't here because you sure think a cat like that would would be a, a big deal to For those sure. people. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, long story short, they are um, they are incredibly plastic animals Mm -hmm. so when you look at what jaguars are they're the largest of our cats in north america um and uh and they have a very broad distribution uh so historically from more or less the grand canyon way down into southern south america um i guess you could argue that their distribution centers out of the uh, northern south america and the amazon basin uh but Jaguars were found from spruce fir forest all the way down to 2,000 feet elevation, wow. and uh, and uh, and in the, their dietary generals, they eat everything. So when you look at mountain lions, they eat a lot of peccaries and deer and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You look at uh, jaguar diets; they're eating armadillos, they're eating fish, they're eating turtles. Oh, all those they're eating famous photos and video clips of meat and caimans down there. Yeah, I believe this. Yeah, cool. and they're they're good at it. I, you know, every time I watch one of those, you notice that caiman hardly moves a muscle after the jaguar gets hold of it, and you can't 
make a reptile stop moving like that generally, which yeah. talks about how, how efficient they are. Yeah, the heads of those things, uh, <clears throat> they're huge. They are. Um, and, and all muscle. Very different cats and mountain lions, mm -hmm. which have a little tiny head on them. And, uh, you know, you look at jaguars, um, photos and uh, videos, any of that, and they're all head and shoulders, and then they kind of taper to this smaller rear end mm -hmm. uh, but gosh are big cats are very incredibly powerful right. even though you know with all of that muscle and the, that that power in those jaws um there's documentations of them ingesting frogs here in arizona correct yeah and that goes back to that dietary you know habitat dietary generalist mm -hmm. so they can live about anywhere i think it gets too hot and dry in arizona as you move to the west and we don't have any records really over that way uh, for the most part and uh, but they'll just eat what's handy and so yeah the one that was killed in the early 70s down there by nogales was full of frogs wow and uh and um and so yeah whatever whatever's handy they they'll eat and that allows them to occupy a lot of diverse habitats eating turtles you know tortoises uh rabbit it, like anything they can catch they'll they'll eat including big things like elk and and uh, there's a report of one killing a bear mm -hmm. um here in the santa rita mountains uh much or uh um what's his name uh, el jefe oh yeah. Uh, they, yeah i remember uh, hearing about that yeah and so the all indications are that it actually killed that bear and ate it and so that, we're talking about an incredibly right. powerful predator yeah, this is going to be a, a hard talk, to, I think, to keep on on a particular line because I'm, I'm, I'm already going all over the place with questions. Isn't El Jefe, is he the one that unfortunately made it back into Mexico and, and was his pelt was was found? Th that was the one out of the Huachucas. Okay. And so that cat is the one that, what do they call them? They called him Gordo, or then they had another name for him, it seems like. And that... Uh, that cat is the only jaguar record from the Huachuca Mountains, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because there's no reason on earth the Huachuca Mountains shouldn't be excellent sure, jaguar yeah. habitat. Well, the Santa Rita's are one of the one of the hotbeds. Santa Rita's are the hotbeds, but Santa Rita's are kind of at the tip of that uh, Madrean Highlands as you as you migrate up from Mexico. One of those big corridors. So the Santa Rita's are better connected, <clears throat> in a sense. Yeah. So if you look at uh, jaguar records in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I guess we should probably step back and talk about the habitat that throughout northern Mexico that allows them to be here. Sure. Just to make to give it context or frame it. Um, and I'll, I'll let you have the floor on that, but I tend to talk too much on these things. But our sky islands are basically the the tip of of a mountain range that kind of kind of brings that those tropical habitats into our country. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, they're basically in the northern end of the Sierra Madres. Mm -hmm. And tell me this if, if I get this wrong, but a jaguar range throughout Mexico is kind of split to the east and the west, correct? Yeah, so maybe not as neatly like that with a big cat, uh, but but um, classic tropical faunal distribution is that you have things that um, basically do a, a U a shape distribution on either sides of Mexico's big central plateau. Okay. And so if you look at vine snakes or boas or all that, you know, they come up almost to Arizona or into Arizona and then they make a U and they come into Southern Texas and they avoid that central highland. Jaguars aren't going to be quite that neat because there are tons of records from Texas and the lowlands of Tamaulipas all the way, you know, through the uh, Sierra Madre Oriental and the Central Highlands of Mexico. Again, you know, a big habitat generalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're a big animal that can travel as well. They're not like yes. our montane rattlesnakes that are kind of stuck on their islands. Right. 
All right. So I guess that kind of covers, well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the, the range in Arizona. I mean, we, we've got documentation, you know, uh, primarily in, in Southeast Arizona, but, but all the way up to the Grand Canyon. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, basically if you picture most of Mexico mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, our, our nearest neighbors, um, uh, as the source population for, uh, jaguars here in Arizona and, um, the, uh, work that Dave Brown did and some others indicate that about 150 miles south of the international border is where our jaguars are coming from. Um, and and so that's, if we want jaguars in Arizona, conservation of that area and that source population is is tantamount to continued existence of jaguars in Arizona. Um, and uh, basically what the cats do, and, you, and anybody can open up Google Earth and look at this, and you can see that there is a pretty much contiguous uh, Madrean Highland uh, topography that moves from the Sierra Madres on up, and it comes into Arizona. Basically, the borders are more or less uh, the Patagonia Mountains to the east and to the west, the Babakivari Mountains, and then the Santa Ritas are kind of the northern tip of that. And that is the most important jaguar corridor in the United States. That's, I mean, all the jaguars we've had um, in recent times, I shouldn't say all of them, almost all of them have moved through that corridor northward. Mm -hmm. A secondary corridor is one that is much more broken and less contiguous, but it it comes up into the southeastern corner of the state and the Santa Rita, or I should say the Chiricahuas are, and the Dos Cabezas are kind of the northern tip of that. And that's where we've got the only jaguar in the United States right now is in that general area. And he followed that corridor up. Mm-hmm. Um, once they come in from that, they have a more or less northwest traje- trajectory following the highlands up to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, so that they, was the one interesting point <clears throat> I saw in your paper, which naturally you would you would expect these animals to follow kind of riparian, riparian corridors. Um, but your paper points out it's more of a mountain thing. Yeah, they're following all these mountain mountain ridges in that northwest uh, trajectory up to the Grand Canyon. And the, in the Grand Canyon, you know, it's probably a significant biogeographical barriers. They they avoid those open highlands of the north eastern part of the state you know when you get on the big reservations you hit those big grasslands and whatnot and then to the west after you leave the plateaus that are over um like bozarth mesa and um and uh and those areas along burrow creek as you drop into those lowlands and those low hot deserts to the western part of the state you lose them again Mm -hmm. so they're they're kind of in that in that swath up through that stuff for the most part um yeah and uh so woodlands mountain ranges but if you look at all the occurrences not only most of the historic occurrences but all the recent occurrences in all practical purposes madrean highlands uh oak woodlands Mm -hmm. and uh, oak pine forest are are the most important habitats utilized by them in arizona yeah that's interesting my next question was going to be regarding habitat if it if any of the records or distributions have shown any any um particular habitats that they that tend to be more favorable yeah, that would be it. But again, you know, cats were, there was one killed out of the Sand Tank Mountains, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I was just there a few weeks ago looking at organ pipes and it's, uh, you know, Palo Verde Saguaro Desert for right. most, about 99% of it. You get up to barely some chaparral kind of stuff and the real high stuff, but 
Yeah. 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 Well, you know, you, you mentioned <clears throat> that the cat that came out of uh, the superstitions right here behind your home. Um, if, if you're referring to the same one I'm thinking of, that was in the Revis Ranch area. Right. Um, and now that, that is a, you know, there's trees up there. I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. but that's surrounded by, by desert. So if, you know, that cat could easily been killed somewhere else, you know, in proper desert, um, while traveling between places, which, you know, would suggest, mm-hmm. suggest other things. But, uh, but yeah, that's just, that's, that's hard for me to, to imagine, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We want to, we want to take these records and say, oh, this cat was found here. This is where it was living and stuff. We really don't know that. Mm-hmm. And since they have such huge distributions or movements, uh, um, home ranges. So, uh, for instance, Macho B was moving, um, from the Pajarito Atascosa mountain complex where he spent most of his time and he'd go all the way over to the coyote. So he'd cross that big, huge flat south of the Cerrito, Cerrito mountains, um, which is mesquite scrub, some of it's grassland, some of it's sandy desert. There's some Arizona upland in there. And then he would hang out in the coyotes and then he'd come back. And so, you know, any point on there, he could have been encountered and in the inclination would say, Oh, this is Jaguar habitat. Well, it, it's yeah it is in the sense that a jaguar moved through it and it was mm-hmm. part of the area that he covered in his in his lifetime and might have covered many times in his lifetime but but it's not where he spent most of his time right. and most of his time we're we're again in those madrean highlands okay well let's let's refer back to, to your paper and talk about the distribution and abundance of these animals throughout arizona and you know uh, for for in, in New Mexico, we should say, and even Texas, and I've even heard Louisiana, uh, potentially in the past. Um, uh, but obviously, let's focus on Arizona. But but yeah, I'd like to hear how those other states kind of factor in as well to an overall historical look at the, the abundance out here in the United States. Yeah, you know, I can't speak uh, um, in much depth about the other states because I haven't looked at, at them a lot. You know, there's a handful of records from... Uh, uh, our neighbor uh, on either side, New Mexico and California. Uh, there's more from New Mexico than there is California. Um, there's a report from as far north as Colorado, and then uh, and then as you get into Texas and those uh, basically the border states um, that you you see those again. There's there's records in there. Texas had a, a a good population of them there were quite a few cats from texas um it's hard to find records uh but there are enough of them out there to indicate that they were in a situation similar to us or maybe even a little bit better off it's hard again i can't really speak to that and then it's kind of there were a handful of cats from florida and then the kind of these one-offs on these uh, coastal states mm-hmm. um kind of thing so they're you know one or two from you know, Mississippi and Louisiana, that kind of thing like that. And, uh, and, um, so again, whether these cats migrated up and kind of followed the coast around to Florida and, and, and piled up there, cause there's several records from Florida, or these were just cats that were pushed back to the Southern tier and persisted after the end of the Pleistocene. Hard to say, but the, um, uh, um, Basically, in Arizona, which is the case I'm familiar with and should stick to because I don't know a lot about those other places, um, they were never common. I mean, when you look at it, all the records, we've got over 82, and we say over 82 because there's several reports that say, I, you know, I saw several cats that were killed in these mountain ranges uh, by local peoples or whatever it was. And so they're just vague enough that you know it's more than one, but you don't know how many. And, you know, it could be, could be 15 or 20. It could be three. 
So, so we really don't know. So when we looked at those records, we just assigned them two cats because uh, it was more than one, but we don't know how many more than one, and we don't want to unduly inflate numbers. Sure. So uh, uh, roughly over 82 cats have been documented from the state. They were never abundant, and that really worked to our advantage because usually when a jaguar was killed, it made the paper somewhere or some kind of report or got photographed. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that's that really worked in our favor. And um, even if you take the mountain ranges where they're most abundant, so we look at the Santa Rita's, we look at the Huachuca's, and we look at that, uh, or excuse me, we look at the uh, Chiricahua's and we look at the Pajarito Atascosa complex, you're looking at nine or so jaguars from those those mountain ranges uh and they pop up with a frequency of about one every 15 years i think yeah. it's like 4.8 or 14.8 years or something like that and so that's not a lot of jaguars even in the mo areas where they're most abundant we've got the most records uh so they they were thin on the ground and i think to say anything otherwise is is probably not supported by, by what we've got in historic records okay. So to, to put this in kind of a nice, neat nutshell, you know, it, it, it's it's a reasonable hypothesis to say that they, they could have been here since the Pleistocene. It, it is. I mean, it's very possible. Mm -hmm. But um, with that said, this is not necessary. This is the very extreme fringe of their home range. So we, we never had robust breeding populations of jaguars. Yeah, and so so right, we've never had a robust population of jaguars. Mm -hmm. Now the the term population gives some other biologists heartache, and this is the whole thing of scientists, right? You get mm -hmm. get in with your buddies that are other scientists and say, I really don't like what you said there and stuff like that. And <clears throat> and the whole idea is, you know, uh, iron sharpens iron, or however that saying goes. Anyway, you you basically. Um, Everybody wants the truth and everybody wants accurate. And uh, we were as accurate as we could be in this paper. Um, but um, I've had discussions with other biologist friends that say, well, you know, that's a stretch to make it a population. But you look in, uh, you look in Webster and a population is, is a set of breeding animals. And we had breeding in Arizona. We did not have a lot of breeding, far as we know. There's, I would argue that there are probably um, many uh, cats that we still don't know about, but I'm not thinking that we've got double the population we had here right. or something, you know, there's probably, I, I, I'm quite confident there's records out there that we have not been able to find yet, but, um, never had a lot of females and never had a lot of reproduction. So, um, a, a breeding population, yes, a robust breeding population, no, a self-sustaining breeding population yeah. may not yeah. have been, I don't know. Yeah, that would, that would be a very hard, hard. That's that's hard to even think about and right. come up with a reasonable idea. Yeah, huh? Yeah, you know the the scientific community is is pretty contentious and cutthroat itself, um, and the conservation community, um, we, especially when it comes to large predators, can be quite divisive and, and argumentative. Oh yeah, well you know that was uh, uh, as sad and the, so this is a horrible thing to say and uh, uh, <laughs> but. Um, if these guys had not killed all these jaguars, we would never have known about them. And and you think about it, and I think about this all the time, and it's it's horrific. And so, in other words, would I have rather a jaguar wandered up into Arizona, died in some remote canyon, and us ever never know about it, or we would you know would do I want some cowboy rancher, government trapper, or hunter 
uh, killing the cat, and we've got a record of it. We've got a specimen. It's in a museum. We can even get DNA from it. Yeah. And so that's that's a difficult question for me to to argue with because I love wildlife. That's why I became a biologist. But I also love the sciences, and I love having that data and that information. So um, basically, uh, jaguars being a big predator was pretty much their undoing. And mm-hmm. I think it's uh, we can honestly say that if um, if uh, um, if mountain lions, coyotes, and bobcats could have been killed off. Uh, from Arizona, they would have been yeah. because they yeah. re- they really really tried, and I can show you article after article from the early nineteen um, hundreds um, and the late eighteen hundreds where Musgrave and mm-hmm. the predatory animal and rodent control guys are talking and saying we're working in the Santa Ritas, we're going to rid them of every predator in there, and they did a good job with things like wolves and grizzlies yeah. and 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 with jaguars, but um, mountain lions, coyotes, foxes. Bobcats yeah. are just too abundant, and uh, they never, even though they suppress the populations, they never really got rid of them. Right. You know, that, that's one you, you talked about, how yeah. folks having different opinions on how things are said. Yeah. Uh, one snippet that I keep running across um, when I'm looking at, at news articles regarding mm-hmm. jaguars in Arizona is government trappers wiped them out. And when, when I'm looking at all this, sure, I'm sure government trappers took out a, a few jaguars here. But but that's not the picture I'm getting whenever I'm, I'm looking over this historical data. Um, you know, it, it one it looks like there there weren't many here e- anyway. Um, but yeah, it was primarily you know hunters and ranchers and things like that. Uh, it, it was everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we always want to find villains. Sure. And 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 uh, you know when it comes down to it, we're the villains. But the villains wearing a lot of different hats. Yeah. So. Um, Jaguars were large predators, mm-hmm. and in the early days in Arizona, any large predator was persona non grata, and there was a great deal of effort to get rid of them, to um, to grow livestock, and a general, uh, a lot of it was to, you know, game association type stuff where you didn't want the predators out there eating the deer or the elk or whatever it happened to be. Yeah. And so... Uh, this war on predators was big, it was real, and it was extensive. And there were people whose job was to basically kill any kind of predator 24 7. Right. They were out there every day. And that kind of pressure, there's not many predators that can stand up against that, especially if you've got low numbers like grizzlies, wolves, and, and jaguars. Um, and, uh, and when you look at those other predators, um, mountain lions, coyotes, wolves, the uh, jaguars were never taken anywhere in the number that those animals were. So right. again, indicating much thinner on the ground. But as you mentioned, you know, some were killed by deer hunters. Um, there were uh, miners that killed some. There were, uh, um, uh, as we mentioned, certainly plenty of government trappers and there were ranchers. Um, and back in those days, there was no social security or anything like that. Everybody had a side hustle. Sure. So if you could, you know, if you were running cattle and you were trapping in the meantime and selling the hides or you were mining and you were trapping in the meantime, selling the hides, all that kind of stuff was more money in your back pocket and right. more food on the table for your family. Yeah. Everybody had that. Yeah. You know, it's on this podcast, since, <clears throat> uh, since I'm a hunter, uh, you know, I, I speak to the pros of hunting a lot in, in the <clears throat> conservation arena and in the bigger picture of wildlife management. But, uh, I, I, I love the nuance, you know, that, I guess from an outside perspective, you know, and we were just sitting here talking about people, you know, killing these, these cats and, um, 
how that necessarily was was or wasn't, I guess, depending on your perspective and where you sit, a good thing. Um, but today, you know, it's it's those lion hunters and those hound houndsmen that that they're the advocates for these cats now. They're the first ones to stand up and and yell the loudest. You know, if anyone would suggest, you know, getting rid of them or are uh, so I, I just I love that that you know that that getting having that tangible connection to wildlife you know even large predators you know creates creates advocates well yeah i think it does you know i've i've grown up fishing and hunting love wildlife and and uh and i would like to think that any uh sports person um if numbers became low on some uh one species or another if there was something that could be done to help it they'd be the first ones to step up and say yeah let's close the season or let's gather money and things like that and of course a lot of wildlife gets um, assisted uh, incidentally with things like Ducks Unlimited, their buying habitat mm-hmm. that so many different species utilize and stuff. And that yeah, that's so great. Different but different user groups utilize as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so, so there's that aspect. And um, Macho Bee um, and uh, the um, the Jaguar that was over in the Pelincio, was actually two Jaguars in the Pelincio, one in New Mexico and one in Arizona, so we only talk about one of those, uh, that Warner Glenn treed. Mm-hmm. And then the um, the Jaguar that was called El Jefe was uh, treed by a houndsman named Finn. So we got our first records of several of those cats uh, by hunters that treed them while they were looking for lions, took photographs of them and let them go, and then uh, added to the body of scientific knowledge. So, you know... Um, I'm kind of a live and let live type of situation, you know, however you want to enjoy wildlife, as uh, long as it's done ethically and legally, um, you know, that's, that's, that's okay with me. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so I would love to ask about, but I, I don't think it's an answerable question. And, and that would be, you know, how Jaguars related to to mountain lions and competition because you know throughout their range you know we have mountain lions which we refer to as pumas uh throughout central and south america um and jaguars live right in there alongside them in fact um a little sightage uh, i i was fortunate enough to get to uh hike across or backpack i should say across uh, one of the largest primary rainforest in, in costa rica wow and uh, so the coronado um and I crossed through, uh, you know, the, the, the middle of this peninsula to the coast. And then the coast, I hiked out to, the, to this village. Um, it was only about 13 miles on the coast, but holy cow, did it feel remote. I mean, nothing but jungle, a little bit of beach, and, and Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that 13-mile that trek, I saw both jaguar and, and puma tracks. Wow. And, yeah, the jaguar tracks were huge. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a little unnerving, you know, especially when it's starting to get late and the waves are getting high and the, the beach is shrinking because the waves, mm-hmm. you're going to have to be biting your way through the jungle pretty soon when there's no beach. So it's a little, little uh, unnerving, especially because you're just in an ecosystem that you're not used to, but that's, that's part of the excitement of being somewhere like that too. Absolutely. But is there any, any indication of, of competition or, or how they got along together? Yeah. You know, uh, um, I think there's been done uh, work done where they're uh, they're they co-occur in the Amazon basin and other places like that because mountain lions have a massive distribution from Canada all the way to southern Argentina. South America and uh, and of course jaguars much less so of a distribution but the um, uh, everything I understand jaguars are dominant um, and so even though they're a generalist they are they are the dominant species they're a more powerful animal they're a bigger animal um and so 
mountain lions, the largest they get is somewhere around 250 pounds um, up in the northern reaches of their distribution. Mm -hmm. And uh, jaguars are clocked out, you know, at 300 or, or a tad bigger. So again, a bigger, more powerful animal. It should be noted that jaguars and mountain lions are about the same size in these northern reaches of the jaguars distribution. So they're you know, 145, 150 pounds yeah. is roughly about what we're looking at, maximum size for both those cats. But still, just looking at them, jaguars are so much more powerful than animal. Right. And uh, I think um, if you've spent time in Costa Rica, as you have, and or anywhere in the tropics, you'll know, notice that there's a, a real paucity of large mammals. Not mm -hmm. like you see here in North America. Right. And so, you know, nothing like an elk there or anything like that. So, um, again, eating whatever you can yeah, find that, that, serves that, you well. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll bet you, I'll bet you, though, a tapir is, is quite... That's, a, a that's one of the few big ones, you yeah. know, and then they're white-tailed deer. They get increasingly smaller as you get south. Right. I mean, talk about tiny little things. Yeah. <clears throat> So I wonder how that relates, you know, to jaguars being so much larger in the tropics. Yeah, that's great. It's an interesting question, you know, and, um, and, and it's kind of contrary to a thing called um, uh, Bergman's rule, mm -hmm. which basically says the further north you get, the bigger animals get. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's your surface area to biomass, and it has to do with retaining heat and dissipating heat. And as a rule, it, you get the opposite so think of whitetail in michigan think of whitetail out here um that's a classic bergman rule kind of thing but there are animals that go against that trend and it and it may be because the necessity i mean if you're wrestling caimans maybe you need to really be big you know i don't know <laughs> you know and so so that kind of deal the other interesting thing about it is um virtually um no accounts of jaguars attacking people I mean, there's a few yeah. out there, but but compared to old world stuff with leopards and lions and tigers, there's, right. there's hardly anything in the new world about jaguars. Yeah, le leopards problems. have a reputation of like coming into town in some cases. Oh, um, you got to read Corbett. Yeah. If you haven't read that, that is all the Corbett stuff, you know, the Ridgerpang leopard and uh, Maneaters of Kumon and mm -hmm. Temple Tiger. Incredible stories about leopards and tigers and what they do. Wow. Yeah, just great. Well, I'm glad we have Jaguars. <laughs> um, so uh, just something I wanted to touch on uh, purely out of curiosity for myself, but what about ocelots, jaguarundis, uh, these other cats, these other tropical cats? Yeah, that's interesting. So I've got some stuff. I don't know if I'll ever get it published on, on, on uh, <clears throat> ocelots, but basically you've got a handful of ocelot records here. I mean, we're talking a dozen or so. And, uh, and again, that's taking the best records and discarding some of the more questionable things. And uh, whatever it is, ocelots are doing very, very different stuff, and Arizona is a lot less hospitable. And what I suspect is that ocelots, again, not knowing a lot about the cats, is that they, they prefer really thick, brushy areas, probably eating a lot of birds and things like that, mm -hmm. small reptiles, other, other small mammals <clears throat> that they catch. Very different animal than, than a jaguar. So, uh, again, part of our tropical heritage. The jaguarundi thing, there are no jaguarundi records from Sonora, Mexico. And even though we get a lot of reports from Arizona, uh, it's not here. Yeah. I, I mean, we would have an animal from from sure. Sonora if they were here. We've got lots of ocelot records from Sonora, but we do not have a jaguarundi record. And so, um, you know, even though in this 
uh, research paper, we used newspaper accounts and we used the best uh, data we could get. Uh, we acknowledge that there's imperfect because some of this data is uh, hearsay records, you know, report, secondhand reports, things like that, or even primary reports, but we don't have a specimen. And as a biologist, I want a specimen. I want an animal in a jar. I want a skin. I want a photograph. I want some kind of records out there because if you start just going on reports alone, then you're talking about Nessie and Bigfoot and, sure, yeah. and, and all that Black stuff. Black Panthers all over the Ozarks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I and grew so, up with all that. Yeah, and so you gotta you gotta draw the line somewhere and and um and the Jagarundis definitely get into the Nessie Bigfoot territory. Yeah, no, I I know folks here that, that swear up and down they've seen them in Arizona. Oh sure, I've but, heard those yeah. too. Yeah. Um I'm not gonna comment on the credibility though. <laughs> um so let's see, where was I gonna go with this next? I, I had a train of thought here. Um Let's talk about, since it's so imperative to what happens here in the United States, can, can you speak to conservation work going on in Northern Sonora? I don't know a lot about it. And there, so there was a recent report that indicated that um, Jaguar population had increased in Northern Sonora. However, I'm kind of skeptical. When I looked at the paper, you know, I wasn't convinced that they, um, the data actually indicated that. Um, and so, um, it looks to me that you're having, you're still having a good deal of persecution and we're talking poisoning, trapping and other things like that. And sadly, uh, the world's, um, growing smaller for animals that need a lot of space. And I don't care if you're talking about elephants or tigers or any animal that needs a lot of place to rumor around, especially any animals that, that come in conflict with human interest. Um, and elephants are one of those. And I, I mean, you can just pick them all around the world. It, it's, it's harder to find places where those things can find true wild places and exist and not have conflicts with human. And uh, jaguars, unfortunately, are one of those. It's one of the most disappointing parts of, of biology and natural history and becoming an adult is all of that stuff coming into realization. Because when you're a kid and you think about Africa, you know, you just think it's 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 all open and wild, you know, and it's it's not. It's parks. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, um, yeah, they call it documenting the the decline. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it 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 is, and you know, small things can persist in you know in small areas mm -hmm. and 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 do really well. But boy, if you're big, you need space. It's right. tough, and and that's a huge problem with the game of fish department even with things like pronghorn yeah. and and other animals we found you know genetic sinks i say we i'm not working with them anymore the game of fish department has found genetic sinks or you know right. uh, um uh uh in these uh populations of pronghorns on, on different <clears throat> sides of a, of a major road yeah and and uh, they're not getting the gene flow they need to to keep the diversity up in the health and the population and sure. so habitat fragmentation whether it's uh, international borders, major highways, big canals, you name it. Um, it's all over and it's a, yeah. it's a huge problem. I'll make two comments on that. One, um, I was fortunate to get to sit down with the, um, the Arizona Antelope uh, Foundation and talk about all the work they do. Um, right. Removing, basically trying to connect those, those populations and, and get that increased genetic diversity and moving animals around. Um, and then the other comment would be, didn't we 
artificially, at least based on the biological species concept, create a new species of like kangaroo rat over in California by running a interstate through through their habitat? I don't know about that. And so like I, you know, I, uh, I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. I, I know just enough to get myself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but, I'm, uh, I'm not familiar with that. But yeah, yeah, basically they, you know, it's almost like a lock and key mechanism to their reproduction. Mm-hmm. And this population on this side of the highway has changed enough that it mm-hmm. can't reproduce with the population on the yeah. other side of the highway now. You know, and what's so important about this fragmentation is you don't know what level of fragmentation any single species Mm -hmm. will tolerate. And so there's a lot of stuff uh, in the Northeast dealing with um, uh, um, timber rattlesnakes that are showing even little two-track roads. You're having some genetic divergence on either side of these that the animals don't want to cross these things. Mm -hmm. And so you start talking about rodents and shrews, you know, uh, if you're, if you weigh three grams, you weigh as much as a penny, how wide is something before you don't want to cross it right may not be very wide so uh there's a lot of things that are getting done where we have no idea what the impact and it's in it and and it might be might be negligible it might be super serious we just don't know yeah i guess in the grand scheme of things looking at it on an evolutionary scale you know all of this stuff that we call society has popped up so quickly that we we don't know what the outcome is going to be you know we don't know the repercussions of, of our roadways and, and, and fragmentation yeah, like that. I think that's absolutely fair to say. Yeah. Um, all right. So to, to put a bow on this, cause, uh, one of, when I reached out to friends and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to get sit down with Randy and talk about Jaguars. You know, what would you like to know? The, the main question I got was people wanted a picture of what the population used to be versus now. Um, and, you know, I think we got the overall idea there. Mm-hmm. But can you, what exact number of documented records do we have in the state of Arizona throughout so, time? Yeah, so so if if we did if we don't include James Ohio Patty sighting, which may or may not be in Arizona, um, we're looking at, at somewhere over 82 Jaguars. Just okay. exactly what that number is, we don't know. But we know that it's, that it's over 82. Now, uh, there were some reports I could not verify, and we mentioned that in the paper. Like, there's a cat reported killed from the Sierra Estrella Mountains mm-hmm. um, in the 30s, and it was supposedly in the Republic. And I searched all over for that cat. I could not find it. I searched 20 years on either side of the reported date, never could find it. So that may or may not be a real real record. And uh, we try to bring those up in the paper, the paper yeah, so people can read it and, and make that decision for themselves. Yeah, I'm going to throw that out or whatever, uh, which is good. The period where we had the most cats were right around the 1920s, mm-hmm. where we reached the greatest number of records for the cats in there. And then it starts declining pretty okay. seriously after that. Was there, you know, in that that time, yeah, I, I don't know much about the twenties um, and what technology was like, but do you think that was, I mean, was, gosh, I, f- I feel silly photography. When did we start taking pictures of things? I mean, the, the fact that we have evidence of animals from that time period, it was that because of technology we had at the time to start recording them. So I think there's a couple different things going on. So one thing is technology improves our level of detectability improves. So mm-hmm. when you see the advent of trail cameras, you see this rush of Jaguar yep. reports yep. in that start in the eighties <clears throat> Um, or I should say uh, late 80s, 90s, and then run on into to recent times. And, and every, that's when the current Jaguar craze kind of got started. Everybody saying, oh, we got Jaguars coming back to Arizona. Not really. We just had trail cameras on 
every water hole, mm-hmm. game trail. I mean, they were everywhere. And the government was using them. Hunters were using them. They were literally everywhere. So, again, the level of detectability went way up. And gotcha. and, uh, and so the because uh, the monitoring was so much. And, and that's where we got a lot of them. The um, uh, back then, uh, uh, so I'm going to go at this at a roundabout way. One of the things in the Game and Fish Department, we were in plenty of meetings and we were talking about restoring wildlife back to historic dis, uh, levels was one of the things that was discussed at some point many years ago. And we went around and around about this. But you read some of the historic expeditions, like the Woodhouse Expedition and some of these other guys that are traveling across the state in the 18, late 1800s. These guys are starving to death. They can't find anything to eat. And it's really tough going, you know, and they're relying pretty much on game. And so certainly not all the expeditions, but some of them had really tough times. Um, so is that really what we want in the state? Is wildlife numbers that low to where that, you know, that, that, that it's historic levels. And so uh, we've got to really be careful. And I think all of us, what that point is, is all of us tend to, and I'm certainly included that, is you think, oh, I would love to have been live in the 1920s, you know, and all this unspoiled land and stuff like that. Yeah, not so much. Because um, we're, we're living in the good old days. Yeah, you are. And so uh, in many, uh, through conservation and modern wildlife management, and when I say conservation, I'm talking about everybody from Nature Conservancy and Audubon to wildlife departments to the Wildlife Federation mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, state groups like your own. Everybody is um, so involved in this now that many, many species, and, and we, can, we can fill up you know, a, a room full of names of things like turkeys and white-tailed deer and everything. The numbers are much greater now than they mm-hmm. were not terribly long ago. So there were a lot of people basically out trying to make a living some way or another that were in the field. Yeah. And they were bumping into these cats and killing them because there was a bounty on them. And so you're talking 20 bucks is what Manuel Guzman got paid and George Lobb got paid for cats that they killed in Pinal County in 1901-ish and uh, around there. And, you know, I don't know what the conversion rate is, but $20 is a heck of a lot yeah. more money that, back then than it is today. <clears throat> And so, you know, that's probably the equivalent of a few hundred dollars um, back then. And so that, you know, you didn't let something like that go. If you could get your hands on it, that's that that might have been your whole income for a month or yeah. or, or months even. Yeah, uh, it's, it's always important, I think, to keep for folks not to just judge harshly and keep try to keep in perspective times and ways of thinking and and, you know, where, where you might have sat. And in that same situation. Yeah. I think that's really important. And, and, and people just didn't know, we just didn't know the same things then that we know now. Right. And, uh, and, and so, you know, avarice and greed and, and unethical folks aside, I think most individuals want to do the right thing and want to be kinder, gentler people yeah. on the planet. And, and, uh, and, uh, and I think that's far enough. I mean, all of us, I mean, I think of myself as a, as as a conservation, I kind of think of myself as a greenie, you know, and those 
have become bad words in certain circles. Yeah, um, I struggle with that. Um, I've always considered myself an environmentalist. Yeah. When did that become a bad thing? I'm also yeah. a conservationist. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a hunter and I'm a naturalist. Uh, yeah. you know, I'm all of this. Yeah, and then we should be. All of us yeah. should be. So we should strive for... If we want to have hunting and angling into the future, mm-hmm. you damn well better start thinking yeah. about the environment. Yeah, but even hunting and angling aside, healthy wildlife populations mm-hmm. of things that we'll never hunt or fish for that we just want to enjoy and know they're out yeah. there. Yeah. And that's and that's, and that's that's what wildlife departments and conservation agencies are all about, you know, is, is maintaining those things. So anyway, getting back to jaguars, mm-hmm. they were heavily persecuted. And I, and there's no doubt my, and when I say that, I, I, I mean that, you know, the, as uh, far as we know, there was not there was not a jaguar we know about that wasn't killed <clears throat> prior to about uh, to Warner's. Warner Glenn's yeah. cat. Yeah. So. Wow. All right. So of those uh, of of those eighty, uh, forgive me, I forget the exact number, but eighty two ish, eighty two documented records. How many of those were female? Yeah, just a handful. So you know, there's so most of the jaguars we've got no sex recorded. And, and so there's some implied sex, uh, um, in there. And so, um, the, uh, there's seven good records of females that are actually named as females, but then we have cats that are traveling in pairs or killed in pairs. And so these big cats are only together during when they're breeding or when you've got a, uh, siblings will travel together for a short period after mm-hmm. they leave the mother. So these are, um, you know, could be two males, could be two females. You don't know. It could be a male and female. Uh, so that implies breeding. And then you've got a, um, you've got, um, uh, so they travel together as siblings. They travel together as sexual pairs and they'll, uh, they'll travel together as mother and offspring. And so we've got, uh, Two cats from, or uh, some reproduction of female with cubs in the Grand Canyon. We got a female and cubs from uh, the uh, Cherokawas. And then we've got um, another one uh, up north, or two more up north. And so, anyway, seven good female yeah. records. So, that were reported a female, female with cubs up around the Grand Canyon. That, that's, <clears throat> you, you can't say that those cubs were birthed in Mexico then. No. No, I, I, and, and that's, you know, and that's really, we, when you look at it, most of the female and cubs, um, or pairs implied, uh, females with cubs or reproduction, uh, a lot of that's north of the Colorado plateau, which is interesting. Don't know what to say about that. Wow. Could be coincidence. Yeah. Could be meaningful, but it's just, it's just an interesting, odd thing of the records. You know, we, uh, um, really in Southern Arizona, you know, we've only got that, uh, one out of the, uh, Reed or the, uh, Chiricahuas, um, where the female was killed and then the cubs were offered for sale in Bisbee. Yeah. Um, briefly one thing, and I'll, I'll try to wrap this up here soon, uh, that we didn't mention when, when you talked about throwing out records was, uh, jaguars that were trapped in, in, uh, Mexico and brought here by, by hunting guides. Yeah. So there was one, uh, um, um, infamous, um, I had to look for the right word there, a fellow that uh, was guiding a lot of jaguar hunts in Arizona, a, a Mr. Proc. Um, and um, and, uh, and um, he, so uh, I think they just recently amended, the Federation did, because I talked with Amanda Moores quite a bit about mm-hmm. this, um, uh, the uh, record book 
yeah. to, to knock out a couple of the Jaguars from down Southern Arizona that Curtis Proc had guided for. And so pretty much all of uh, Curtis Proc's, um, anything he had to deal with in Arizona is, uh, as far as we can discern, is illegitimate. Those were cats. He was actually importing them from Belize. He was releasing them. And then he would have canned hunts, basically. The hunters were unaware of this. Mind you, they were uh, hiring Curtis to guide them on a jaguar hunt. And the pretext, as far as I understand it, he would use was that, um, yeah, there's been a cat killing some livestock down here. I talked with the rancher. We'll go down and find it. And then he would kick it out of a cage just in front of the hounds, the hounds would run it down and kill it. There's an interesting article that's in the bibliography um, or literature cited of the paper that's basically called The Man Who Loved Cat Killing, and it's out of um, out of uh, um, Sports Illustrated, oh, of all places. Yeah, and this talks about where they finally catch up with Curtis Proc in New Mexico because he leaves Arizona and does the same thing there. And he gets cats from zoos and other places, and he does the same kind of can hunt thing. But uh, it sounds like an awful lot of trouble. It does. It does. I can't imagine. Why not just hunt mountain lions? Yeah, but uh, you know, maybe the money was that much better. It was worth it. I can't imagine dragging a cat, you know, a cat across Mexico and uh, half of Arizona, you know, to Mm -hmm. to do this with. Um, But he 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 apparently enjoyed this in the interviews that Dave Brown had with him before his passing. He thought that was all a lot of fun and amusing because he loved the cat and mouse with the authorities and the wildlife departments and stuff. And so, um, anyway, uh, we were getting really close to him. Apparently when I say we not with the game fish department, have to keep remembering that, uh, the game fish department was getting really close to him at the time in the, uh, early Mm sixties. Um, and, uh, he released two cats up on the, uh, in the reservation lands there around the white mountain Apache, uh, San Carlos Apache country. Um, and both those cats persisted for varying times, but you know, four to six months in the field, uh, before they were actually killed. And so that was the pinrod Jaguar in 63 and the color Jaguar in 64. Those were both, um, uh, imported cats that were released. Um, and they were released not for the can hunts, but they were released because, law enforcement was closing in on him and he couldn't use him on canned okay. hunts. And, uh, and so those are the only ones that we, we have that are, you know, that, um, that will cause confusion because the other ones we, we pretty much were on to, uh, like, um, I think there was a Jaguar killed by Mr. Nut mm-hmm. that, um, that was, that was, uh, we knew was illegitimate. So okay. yeah, unfortunate, like like I said, muddled the record for a little bit. Interesting story, though. Yeah, and so we actually talked with a uh, a, a gentleman, uh, a Mr. Smith, that had worked with Curtis Proc when he was a young man mm-hmm. uh, in his teens, and he had heard all the stories. And so when uh, you know, because Curtis would tell them all these things, and so we uh, when I talked with him, he was, you know, it was great. I loved. You know, all we want is the truth. Yeah, and and we want accuracy, and we really strived hard to be as accurate as we could in this paper gotcha well i I think you know i want to be clear on this that um it's clear that you know as cool as it is having jaguars in the united states the remnants of population we have now and the potential population you know as low as it was that we've had in the past are not they're not significant when it comes to jaguars as a whole yeah so um, 
critical habitat <clears throat> is supposed to aid in the recovery of a species. Mm-hmm. And when you have, um, and, and so sometimes uh, critical habitat that is fringe habitat is designated, or habitat that is fringe habitat is designated as critical habitat because there's nothing else left because that's the only habitat you have left for that. And there's several species that this happens with, uh, some of the frogs in the southeast and other things like that. You know, the, the, this is all we've got left. It's not ideal. Um, and so we're going to do that. And, and so uh, there's that issue. But that's not the case in jaguar. We have the primary habitat for all our jaguars is down in Sonora, Mexico. And we can't have jaguars in Arizona if there's not jaguars in Sonora. Mm-hmm. So we have not, uh, the last naturally occurring jaguar, female jaguar in Arizona was uh, 1949 on, uh, down along the border, um, killed by a deer hunter. And uh, we have not had a female there. So if we were wildly optimistic, the last chance we had for reproduction in Arizona was prior to 1950. Mm-hmm. That was the last female that could have bred in Arizona that 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 we know about. And so all these jaguars that have come up since then, there was no reproduction going on. Yeah. You know, none it's that we know about. There's no indication of that. And these are satellite dispersing males. These are males dispersing northward. Right. It's what big cats do. It's what a lot of big animals do. They they move out to these fringe areas. Um, lions do that in western Arizona quite a bit. Uh, a lot of work done by Matt Pierce uh, talks about that was really interesting stuff. So the, um, um, uh, what, since we don't have reproduction going here, then, uh, then, uh, if we don't protect the source population, jaguars will just come and go, just come and die out. And that's, what's, I mean, that's what's going to happen. And that's okay. That's a natural thing. That's mm-hmm. what animals do. And that's the situation we're in right now. Yeah. So do we want to spend millions and millions of dollars trying to bring females and males back in and get them established? Um, don't know. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's necessarily a reasonable thing to do, but um, I would love to see a Jaguar in Arizona. I mean, I would give my right arm to do yeah. that. And yeah. so, um, uh, um, but there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, uh, habitat on the rim and other places. And so again, these things were habitat generous. This, those cats are there, but you got to look back at where most of the records occur and where most of the records are animal. We're talking the Madrean highlands. Mm-hmm. And that is the stuff that's designated as critical habitat. Yeah. So it seems to me as a biologist, why are people talking about doing something somewhere else where the critical habitat that's already designated for them is down along the border. And if you're going to do anything, you should probably already do it in the designated habitat. So this is a real controversial thing. Um, I don't have a dog in the fight. I've just looked at the history Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that, um, you know, as a biologist, most of my life, um, recovering animals in a peripheral area when we could be concentrating on the primary source population so we would ensure that we'd always have jaguars wandering up Arizona our money's better spent down there where our jaguars are coming from than up here yeah. where they were always thin on the ground all right well one other one other point um and yeah I want to be careful like I, I don't I don't want to to make this political so 
let's try to take politics out of it. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be disingenuous um, if it, talking about the future of these animals uh, in our state with without at least addressing the wall. And I guess the way I would put it is in its current state, the way it is now, how much of a threat does it pose to migrating animals? And of course, you know, if it were to be completed, I would suspect that that would, um, you know, be exponentially worse. So uh, as a biologist, Mm -hmm. and and again, politics out of this, um, any kind of barrier is not good for wildlife. I don't care if it's a dam, Mm -hmm. a roadway, a canal, a fence, a huge development. And we've proven that again and again and again through research. So, um, you know, I mean, it's just a fact. And and you've got to deal with it, whether you like it or not. And so having a physical barrier between us and all that tropical habitat to the south, uh, that's not a good wildlife thing. Okay. I mean, it, it, it's just that simple. And so I don't know all the particulars about the completion of the wall, mm-hmm. uh, but I do know that the section um, through the, uh, the Madrean Highlands uh, west of Nogales is, is largely open still. Okay. And so that's, that's a good thing. Still, that's our major corridor, and that is the area we're most likely to have jaguar um, just given the sheer records in the past, that's the area we're most likely to have a jaguar come into the state. Now, mind you, the one we have right now came up through the Santa or the uh, Chiricahuas, uh-huh. and that's that's interesting. And I don't know what the the extent of the wall is in that part of the state, but if it's complete, that's going to discourage them. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, that, that's, that's, uh, at least at the, for the time being it's porous enough that it's, it could still allow these animals in here. So I guess the, the overall future picture of this is probably pretty bleak with that said, I very much love the idea of, of these animals, you know, even if it's just one that we know about being here in the United States, I, I feel like it adds a lot to our, I don't know, how do you say it? It's all feely stuff, you know, but, yeah. but I think it's important still. Um, it's again, it's one of the reasons I'm here in Arizona now. It's the reason I'm raising my family here. Yeah. You know, so, um, I want to see one of everything before I die. I want to see <laughs> it all and it's not going to happen. And, and I understand that, but I think a lot of us, are, um, get a great deal of satisfaction just knowing that it's out there yeah. somewhere. So I, I may never see a tiger, but I like knowing that there's tigers out roaming through parts of India and Sumatra and all these other places. Mm-hmm. I like knowing they're there. Uh, same thing with countless other animals that I will never see. I I feel good knowing that they're still out there, they're still existing and doing just fine. And uh, and that's very much the same thing in jaguars with jaguars. I don't have to see one in Arizona. I would love to, yeah. but knowing that they're in Arizona, yeah, I, I kind of gets that gives me a big smile on my face as I yeah. lay down at night, you know, or just thinking about it that they're they're out there doing what jaguars do, and they've been doing the same thing for a gajillion years, and hopefully that'll continue for another gajillion years. That's that's a really nice feeling knowing that that stuff's out there, and I think that's probably true of every person on the planet that loves wildlife. Just yeah. knowing that something they like, whether it's a whale or a dolphin or a bird of some sort or elk or whatever it is, knowing that they're out there doing that stuff, don't don't have to be able to hunt it, don't have to be able to see it, just knowing yeah. it's there, 
that's that's great right well you know to try to do my best to, to end this on a high point um I, I, you know, I guess the the future of, of Jaguars in Arizona and the United States in general is gonna gonna depend on what happens in Mexico, uh, where their habitat is. Um, and I will say this: I, I realize they face a lot a lot of issues down there as well. But there's some very passionate conservationists in Mexico. Yeah, they've been doing some great work in Mexico, and there are there's. I mean, they've got. I've wor- I've had the privilege with to work with many of those biologists on everything from from uh, jackrabbits and mass bobwhites to pronghorn and other things. And they're phenomenal, Mm -hmm. really excellent folks and really dedicated. And it's so much harder to be a biologist in Mexico because they are not, uh, they're per diem. They're living when they're working in the field, they don't get paid for that. That comes out of their own pocket. And we used to, uh, and I don't know if that's changed, but very recently it hadn't changed. And we used to all collect a big pool of money to, pay for the meals for the biologists we were working with when we were doing mass bob white stuff or whatever it happened to be. And, um, and so talk about dedicated. I mean, how many people here in this country would, would work if they had, if all their expenses came out of their back pocket when they were doing field work, you yeah. know? Um, so, uh, we've got a really wonderful system here, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and compensated for that stuff. But that just shows you the level of dedication that so many of those oh, biologists yeah. are, are operating under. And, um, and, uh, I can't say enough of good things about them, but they, they struggle against all the same things we have right. here. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's a very difficult situation. Wow. Well, Randy, thank you. Thank you so much for this. Uh, it's something I've been interested in for a long time and wanting to dig into. Um, your paper's fantastic. Thank uh, you. I would encourage anyone to go out there and read it. Just reading those those snippets from newspaper articles about these encounters is was just fascinating. Um, I guess with that, here's to here's to hoping hoping we have jaguars around roaming around Arizona for for years to come. Yeah, when I leave this place, um, when my time comes, it I'll I'll be happier going, knowing that there's just cats out there somewhere doing what they're doing. Awesome. Thanks again, Randy. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I had having it. Uh, Randy Babb is simply a fascinating man, a wealth of information on all things natural history, especially here in Arizona. And I mean, Jaguars. Is there a more interesting topic than jaguars in the United States? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I've been fascinated about these animals since before, you know, before I moved here. Uh, they're, they're simply a magnificent, large carnivore. And I hope you learned a lot. Um, I hope you gained some appreciation for the biodiversity of our great state of Arizona. Uh, let me tell you, not everywhere is like this. You know, everywhere is special, everywhere is beautiful in its own right, but Arizona, it's got something extra special. You know, our biodiversity is something to be proud of, it's something to take take care of. So, yeah, get out there, enjoy it. Um, You're probably not going to see a jaguar, I'm probably not going to see a jaguar, but knowing they're there uh, is enough for me. So let's, uh, let's take care of that habitat, let's take care of our great outdoors and our public lands, make sure these animals have mountains to roam in. And get back here in two weeks for our next episode. In the meantime, please reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. I'd love to have your suggestions. I'd love to have your comments. I'd even take your criticisms. Um, So yeah, reach out and talk with me. I'd appreciate it. Until next time, 
This has been the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast.